For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning. I'm a little behind, but um, still struggling with the knees. Uh, but I'm going to do the bio today. Um, I hope to go to Israel this Wednesday, arrive on Thursday. The trip starts on Monday. So it's going to be a busy time. <laughs> Hope I can schlep it around with my feet. And uh, let's get down to business. This is, for for quite a while now, Chaim Lazark from uh, Mexico City has been bugging me to do Moses Mendelssohn. I didn't want to do it, but he's very persistent. And uh, I think, you know, there's a certain type of person out there that looks at Mendelssohn as like a certain, uh, you know, uh, from voyeurism or something like that. So I'll do it because... Uh, uh, he wore me down, so this is being sponsored by Chaim Zork and his family in Mexico. They're big into Kirov over there in the Aish and everything like that. Um, I never was in Mexico, but I know it's a large Jewish community, and there's probably plenty of Kirov work to do over there. Um, so we'll do somebody a little unusual today, which is, of course, Moshe Mendelssohn, Moshe Mendelssohn uh, who is often misunderstood. Uh, at least I'll do part of them today. Let's put it that way. And uh, to jump right into it, because all I can ever do is get my evaluation, as I always say. Uh, the key point about Mendelssohn is he was smart enough to realize if you want to introduce any any changes into Judaism and Jewish life, you better stay from. Because otherwise it becomes self-delegitimating, and then whatever you did doesn't have any kind of long-term effect on others. Uh, unless they're not from like you, and that has that peters out eventually because of assimilation and intermarriage. Uh, that's just an interesting insight. I said today, for example, in the year twenty twenty three, we just had the new year. Uh, those who want to introduce new um, ways of doing things into uh, Jewish li- Orthodox Jewish life realize doggone well that they better stay within, uh, you know, observance, uh, Torah mitzvahs, because otherwise. It'll uh, have no kium, as we saw with, let's say, for example, conservative Judaism, where they try to introduce originally into Orthodox Jewish life certain changes, but because they themselves, 99.9% were not observant, so then it lost any sense of legitimacy, it lost any sense of respect. There's nothing respectable whatsoever coming out of the conservative uh, tradition, because, I mean, they'll admit it themselves, you know, because uh, they couldn't deliver the goods. The problem you have with modern groups, like left-wing groups in Orthodoxy today is, they'll say, yeah, well, we keep Shabbos, but, you know, when it comes to, for example, gender issues or, or identity issues or things like this, they, they, they want to introduce changes. This is interesting. So this whole phenomenon starts with Mendelssohn. Um, in other words, not Reform Judaism, but this, uh, this sort of attempt to modify Orthodox Judaism. Uh, and I don't say he did with a bad intention at all. Uh, so let's get down into this. We're talking about somebody who lived in the 18th century, in the 1700s, in uh, Germany, in northern Germany, uh, in the kingdom of Prussia. Now, here I always run a problem that you don't know your history, except those of you that do and write to me, so I know the history. Uh, but Germany didn't exist as a country at that time, as I said over and over again. But in the 18th century, it was still the Holy Roman Empire. And instead, you had individual German states. Uh, however... By the time you get to Mendelssohn's time, 
to because uh, he was born in 1729 and he died in uh, I think 1785 so he did not live a long life he died in his mid 50s okay died in his mid 50s uh, that's not a long life but he lived all the time in uh, Prussia most of the time in Berlin uh, as I said before you had these German uh, uh, principalities and states formally speaking they were all under the uh, overlordship of the Holy Roman Emperor. So in other words, what we call the Holy Roman Emperor it was simply with the German Emperor. Uh, but Lamaisa, by the time you get certainly to 18th century, the individual princes didn't want to be under the Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, they wanted to expand their own states. And the arch example of that is Prussia, during the lifetime of Mendelssohn, of our hero, when the king, for the most part, was Frederick the Great. And uh, so in other words, Mendelssohn lived under Frederick William I and Frederick II, those two very, very famous Prussian kings, and they built Prussia into a great power. Uh, so uh, he lived at a very unusual time. And uh, he wasn't involved in the wars, but there were big wars in his time. And Prussia doubled and became the strongest of the German states and eventually knocked out the Holy Roman Emperor and, and took over the whole Germany. That's the Kaiser and Bismarck in the 1800s. So the origins of this go back to the time of Mendelssohn. Now, as far as Jewish history is concerned, there were Jews. Um, there were Jews in um, in Prussia, but uh, ever since uh, how should I put this? Ever since Prussia got its act together and started concentrating on um, tremendous expansion and making its uh, government very efficient and uh, turning everything into militarism. So that they, if you have a big army, you can conquer more territory, and that makes your country bigger. And then you can conquer even more territory, and makes your country bigger. The origins of Hitler are here, even though these people were not Hitler. But the idea of, of military expansion and all the rest of it go back to the to this era. So the Prussian government always had a very ruthlessly economic attitude towards the Jews, and you couldn't live there if they were poor. If you were rich or you contributed to the economy, they make a special exception for you. And our hero was poor until he wasn't. So um, you'll see how all this affects everything. Okay, the conventional story is simple. Moses Mendes was born in um, Dessau, which is not too far away from Berlin, uh, in 1729, uh, to Frum parents. So he came from a Frum family. And all of his life, he had a Frum side. His father was a cipher. So think about that. A cipher stam. Uh, so that's a religious guy. And his mother was a descendant of the Ramah. So Yichas he had, okay? And his parents naturally wanted him to, uh, you know, grow up in the in the old-fashioned way. And therefore, in this small town of Dessa, which how many Jews could have been there? A very small number. Uh, he, he used to, he was uh, born sick. I know he had a hunchback. I'm not sure if that happened later in life or he was born that way. It's not 100% clear to me. And now they call it all, you know, curvature of the spine, all, all sorts of things like that. They used to say because he bent over and read so many books. I don't know if that's really true. I think it's a, a genetic or, you know what I mean, a medical thing. But whatever the case is, he was a very delicate child, and his mother used to carry him to the cheder. He shouldn't walk through the streets and get hurt. So, um, you know, from from delicate. So that's the kind of mother he had. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, you, you physically carry your, your child to cheder. <clears throat> now, the story of Mendelssohn is he was a very smart guy, a very smart boy, and he had a good mazel to uh, establish a relationship with a Rebbe. 
which is everybody been yeshivas knows that doesn't happen to everybody. Okay? Does not happen to everybody. If you're lucky, you click with somebody. If you're not lucky, you go through the system. Isaac ate this. Um, now, in his case, the uh, the local rabbi and the person uh, uh, who uh, who ran things there was David Frankel, who was a rich from rich family, and he was a rav there for a while, and he's the carbonator. He knows he wrote in the Yushalmi. So, in other words, when Mendelssohn was growing up. The local rabbi, and remember, it's a small community with one shul, uh, was a pretty good Talmud Chacham. And and uh, the young Moshe Mendelssohn uh, had, he didn't grow up to be tall, dark, and handsome, quite the opposite, but he had a beautiful mind. And in yeshivas, you know, all that matters is if you're smart. And so he clicked with the Rebbe because he was smart. And he was into learning, as they would say. And what's famous is that when he was, I don't know, 12, 13, something like that, uh, the Rebbe got a promotion. He became the rabbi in Berlin, Dav Basin in Berlin, which was a much larger community, although not gigantic either. And our hero, uh, it's very famous, walked uh, to Berlin to learn with the Rebbe. So in other words, this would be ordinarily a story of, of Yekish pietism, which was not uncommon at all in the 18th century. Uh, Europe at that time was full of different yeshivas, where boys walked there hundreds of miles sometimes to go learn by somebody. After all, there's no train, and you couldn't afford a coach unless you were rich. And so people just did it. It's always interesting to me and, 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 and weird. Parents would send their kids, you know, with some food and all that, and now, now go walk 150, 250 miles to go to learn by this and this, uh, you know, yeshiva rabbi. Uh, and they weren't afraid that the kid would, something bad would happen to them. Now, I know a few cases in America like that, but not many, uh, where you would just put a kid on a train and you say, you know, get there to the other way. Um, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, my good friend Moshe Fuller passed away. Talking to him about Mexico and South America. Um, his father, I think, told me, Herschel Fuller, uh, from Mexico, that, uh, you know, way back in the 50s, I guess, or something like that, his father put him on a bus in Mexico City and said, go learn in Chaim uh, Berlin. And I don't know how many days it took for the bus to go from Mexico City to New York. I mean, who the heck would do that today? Uh, so, you, you, But in, in 18th century, this is how life was lived. And so our hero, this little hunchback boy, whatever, walks to, uh, walks to Berlin. And uh, he gets in because the Jewish community of Berlin, which is, I don't know, 2,000 people maybe, uh, if that. Uh, the Jewish community of Berlin... Uh, was still at the time we're talking about. If he's born in 1729, so we're talking about the early 1740s, right? When he's 12, 13 years old, something like that. In 1740, Frederick the Great became the king of Prussia. And for the next 45 years, he was the king and was uh, having all these big wars and winning them uh, with a lot of losses, But he and he doubled and tripled the size of the kingdom. So uh, our heroes living in, in uh, tumultuous times but he's a Jew. He doesn't play any part of that. And so the uh, the city of Berlin, which is 40,000, I think, 45,000 people, had a small Jewish community with a shul and a Jewish neighbor, not a ghetto. And um, uh, this was old-fashioned, still autonomous course of community, a kehillah, like, you know, I've spoken about other times. 
So there's a board of directors of the Richie Riches, and they run the show. And uh, this is sort of pre-modern in the sense that the only kind of Jewish life they knew was the old-fashioned type of Jewish life. So uh, people were in business. Uh, if you didn't succeed in business, they threw you out of the country. And that's how it was. Especially Frederick the Great was a big momser. And uh, part of the thing of having a Jewish community means you have a synagogue and you also pay for the rabbi or somebody to have like a shtickle yeshiva or base medrash as they call it at that time. And that means that X number of Bukharim, poor, will be allowed to come into the Kehillah and be subsidized by the kill. I mean, you know, listen, you ain't talking a lot of money. You're going to eat uh, bread and water, you know. Uh, but people used to be willing to do that. And they will learn. Uh, and that's a, that makes you a respectable Jewish community. The fact that you not only have a synagogue, which I understand was a pretty synagogue. Uh, it's famous, the king of Prussia actually visited the synagogue in 1718. And... Uh, uh, and yet a base matter separate from that, like we say today, a local yeshiva, and that's where he learns. I don't, and and in other words, he resumed his kesher, as we call today, with his rebbe, with David Frankel, who was in the process of writing up his stuff on the Yushalmi. Now, the very fact that you have a rabbi writing on the Yushalmi shows that um, he's a little out of the box. Now, uh, listen, writing the Yushalmi doesn't mean I'm from. But it's all out of the box. It's not 100% yeshivish. Now, of course, they learned the Tom Bobby also. Of course, they had regular class in Gemara, Halacha. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, but you don't find too many people working on Yerushalmi. I'll add something else. David Frankel, the Rav, who, by the way, was from a rich family. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have been in, in Berlin. Well, I shouldn't say that. You know who came before him? Two rabbis before him, the Pnei show up for a while in the 1730s. So it's funny how these things, uh, you know, develop. But um, uh, W. Frankel, he also was into Mernavuchim. That's the point I'm going to get across, uh, which was printed around that time. And so our hero, 13 years old, 14 years old, and, and through all of his teens, for the rest of his teens, he's learning the yeshivas. They put in many years. And therefore, Moses Mendelssohn knew how to learn. As someone would if he put a gears in yeshiva, and you're good, you know, and 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 you're smart. So this is a person who was a talmud chacham, uh, never went for the rabbinate or anything like that, but he was a talmud chacham. Uh, but again, he's he's not what I would call a narrow, narrowly focused yeshiva type of talmud chacham, in the sense that he just on Gemara and Rashi Tosis, Gemara Rashi Tosis, Gemara Rashi Tosis with Marshal. You know that that was the style in that time. Uh, He's more than that. Remember, the Roshonim were not were not so well published at that at, at that era, and so um, uh, it's a lot of Bikiyas. Um The Ian is, of course, of a different nature. You know, the Sugya style, and uh, at the same time, uh, the Rebbe was interested in uh, the Morna Bukhami. He learned it with him, I think, if I remember correctly, and. He's exposed to Maimonides at a, at a young age, which is not usually what happens in yeshiva. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Rambam, but uh, it I would say it uh, it clicked with him because our hero had a natural bent of mind to be a philosopher. 
Now, certain people are like that and certain people are not. Most of the people listening to this podcast, I imagine, are not. Because I'm talking about sitting through and thinking ideas out and putting them into a structured form and taking lots of different pieces and making a system out of it. I mean, that's hard thinking. And most of us don't, you know, unless you are have that bent and you study philosophy, uh, usually aren't going to cultivate that. Me, myself, and I, for example, always say I'm not a philosopher, I'm a historian. Historians are epistemological enemies of philosophers for a number of reasons. Uh, but our hero was not so interested in history, he's interested in philosophy. And the fact that he came across the Murnavuchim, uh, you know, was obviously a significant factor, even though he's doing it, chutz l'seder, that's the point I want to m- mention. He didn't miss Sidarim. He was a good boy, woke up, went to the davening, you know what I mean, chakras, in the in the base medrash and you know minchamarev and the, he's doing all the shiurim but you have time chutz this year if you want to and that's where he picked this up now being of this nature uh, so he's what we call break the guy he's interested in more than just gemar 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 I want to repeat he spends most of his day doing gemar 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 so it doesn't mean that he's opposed to anything like that but on the other hand. There's more out there than just Gemara, 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 if you're of that nature. So, obviously, Tanakh, Dikduk, that sort of thing, goes without saying. Hold on one second. Hi, uh, yeah, I was <coughs> interrupted. The, uh, so, he had, a, a like you say, in, interest more wide than just the narrow focus on Gemara and that sort of thing. But I'll repeat, he did a lot of Siddharm every day, you know. And the Jewish community in Berlin was mostly made up of businessmen, because otherwise the government wouldn't let him be there. Business people in the grubby young sense that, you know, they're all very money-oriented, which goes with the territory, you know. And, um, I mean, they had their rich guys there. Uh, how should I put it over here? That uh, they were in coach with the government. I mean, it's a whole long story. Frederick the Great, who hated Jews, ironically used them in his nefarious... Um, uh, funny money schemes, the Minsu and the, the Minchus, uh, they had people who, who, who made money in all kinds of ways, and they were the mockers in the community. But since it's an old-fashioned community at the same time, uh, so they had their share of local or visiting scholars, <clears throat> and uh, a place like Berlin, which the community was not large and was exposed to very wide Prussian society, German society, so they had X number of weirdos there. And our hero, who clearly was growing up in yeshiva, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, 18 years old, so um, they could kind of see that his proclivities are more than just Gamar Gamara. And he met and um, made it his business to learn from a number of people that we would later call Maskilim although it's a little bit early in history to call him that. Uh, especially there was a guy, Gumpertz, and another guy, uh, Yisrael Zamash. Yisrael Zamash is actually very interesting. He's a, a Galician Jew in the 1700s, who was an Islam, a big exception. And <clears throat> he was a Talmud Chacham, he was. But he's also interested, as I said before, in non-Talmudic stuff, although um, not in a non-from way at all. And uh, just to give you an example I'm talking about, Yisrael of Zamush. Zamush is a well-known town in eastern Poland. I used to have a guy in my show from there. Um, and Zam, uh, Yisrael of Zamush 
uh, wrote a, the, the commentary, basically, on the Kuzri. It's one of the two classic commentaries in the Kuzri, which is still used today <clears throat> when the From published the Kuzri with the Mepharshim. And he also has one of the key uh, Pirushim on the uh, Chobos Alvavos, believe it or not. I have somewhere in the house one of those uh, brand new Chobos Alvavoses, with, first of all with the Kudus, and second of all with all the different Mepharshim. And I think it's Tiva Levonin or something like that. And so here's a guy writing a commentary. And by the way, it's pretty good, too, of when the Chobos Alvavos, you know, which is, of course, a translation from the original Arabic. So, um, and he wrote on math. So people like that what we call maskil, although it doesn't mean anything unfirm at all at the time I'm talking about in the early 1700s. And this other guy, Aaron Gumpertz, he actually uh, came from an important family and wanted to, wanted to be a doctor, went to medical school. I mean, it's not a crime. It was a Shabbos Shabbos guy. And I might say, Gumpertz especially, uh, tried to call attention to the Jews uh, through Hebrew essays to something that was just on the horizon then and has, of course, become the dominant reality of our time. Again, I'm talking about the more or less the early 1700s. And that is the emergence for the first time ever in history of actual science. <laughs> okay? Um, <clears throat> throughout history, in the West anyway, in the West, science was still based on a lot on the Aristotelian stuff and, you know, uh, Hippocrates' medicine and uh, what do you call it, uh, Ptolemy's astronomy, and all that kind of business. And uh, they really were totally in the old Greek and Roman ideas, which were mostly wrong. The, what you and I call science today, which is empiricist, is based on experiments and things of that nature, uh, and that you don't prove something is true, unless you can demonstrate it, that only starts to emerge late 16 and early 1700s. And so... Great advances are made in mathematics and all the other departments of science. And uh, most Jews didn't know about this. Uh, they, If they read a science book, it's like written by the Ibn Ezra or something. So, uh, yeah, you know, only if you like went to medical school and it was, he went to Frankfurt Medical School, the not the Frankfurt in the West, the one you know, the other one, the Frankfurt in the East of Germany, Frankfurt Oder. And uh, there they were exposed to the new ideas that are popping up. Um, I would say that from the late 1600s to the late 1700s, modern science was born. Uh, they made a lot of mistakes along the way, as, as will happen. By the late 1700s, late 1700s, you know, science is what we know it today. And then it begins its great jump forward, as you know. As I've said a thousand times, there's no difference between 1800 BCE and 1800 AD. It's still a horse and wagon. But there's a huge difference between 1800 and 1900, <laughs> okay? And certainly there's a big difference between 1900 and the year 2000 and so forth. So that all begins around the time of our hero, uh, who was born in 1729. And therefore, uh, there really is a new world of ideas. <clears throat> now listen closely to what I'm about to say. What is the firm opinion on the hard sciences? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? If, in, in the Middle Ages, the firm were always mesopic and very conflicted on the sciences, because these were conceived of as having a very heavy philosophical content. Okay? In fact, science was called natural philosophy, philosophy of nature. And the problem was when science expanded itself into the realm of the religion, into the metaphysics, and they had all these arguments between what Aristotle, quote-unquote, and his type, 
said on the one hand and what Revelation said on the other, what the Torah says. But by the time you get to the 1700s, slowly but surely, science and philosophy are getting a divorce. You understand? Slowly but surely, science and philosophy are getting divorced. Today, you don't think of philosophy as scientific, right? Uh, uh, you know, one is a hard and fast kind of business, and the other one is uh, speculation, even though I'm not doing justice to the philosophical enterprise when I say that, but I think you understand what I mean. Now, um, all this is emerging at the time our hero, through, throughout his lifetime, and think, for example, the Vilna Gone, who's a couple hundred miles to the east, and uh, what do you call it? He is uh, interested in science, but not in philosophy. Okay? And uh, the Vilna Gone, what shall I say? Uh, was he using the new science? I mean, I don't know. I doubt it, but I could be wrong. The reason I could be wrong is uh, there was a university in, in, in Vilna. I don't know if he had any shakas to it. They say that the Vilna Gone once was in the university in Königsberg during his um, uh, wanderings. The University of Königsberg was, a, was a, a modern university. You know, I don't know what it was in it when he visited it. But the new notions of science, mathematics, and all that uh, presented an interesting challenge to the Frum. Now, I've said a hundred times, before the Hasidim came along, the Frum world never actually articulated a principled opposition to Limuri Chol per se. The only opposition they had was when something in Limuri Chol is connected to Torah, as they perceived it. But if you had, in other words, no one ever argued that it's in principle wrong to read a math book, for example. Right? Uh, <clears throat> now, when you get to the modern science that you and I understand it, so knows what is trafe about physics? Well, you ask an interesting question to raise. Or biology, or uh, you know things of that nature. You know what exactly is truth about that stuff? Um, now, by the way, it could be. I'll tell you what I mean. Suppose they start talking about um, what do you call it? evolution. Depends how you hold on that. That you can already see that people got you know their their, their, their hackles will go up, right? Uh, I wouldn't exactly uh, put an evolution book in the middle of a base medish in liquid, you know. Um, on the other hand. Let's stick to math. Uh, what can you what can you tie about math? You, you, you get what I'm saying? Uh, what about medicine, uh, which is empirical? I mean, what can you say against the medicine? Uh, at least not that I can think of. Now, um, the point is that uh, these guys, Aaron Gumperts and others, they're trying to push the idea that. All right, stay away from the Aristotle stuff and stay away from the stuff which is connected to Torah. But every intelligent Jew who's got a brain should find out how the Bria works using the tools of modern science, which give us an insight into how reality is in a way that the Friedrich didn't understand, even though the Ramam was a lot smarter than us, but the Ramam was tied to the old medieval ideas and we're past that. You, you see what I'm saying? Uh, that's the idea I'm trying to get across. So this was the intellectual world in which our hero is growing up. So he's, he's a yeshiva guy, but not the typical one. And most importantly, uh, he picks up languages <coughs> from the other guys. So from Yisrael Zamash, he showed him, hey, there's not only a Mordevuchim out there, there's also the Chavaz Alvavos, the Kuzari, Sadegon Zemunas Vedeos, 
you know, and, and the Sefer Ikrim and all that sort of thing, meaning the philosophical tradition of medieval Judaism, the philosophical tradition of medieval Judaism. Was he learning Kabbalah? I'll bet you money he was. Because if it's a yeshiva in Germany at that time, the 1700s was a hot period, believe it or not, of interest in Kabbalah. That's exactly when you had the Amdenabshitz fights and things of that nature, uh, the aftermath of the detritus of the uh, Sabbatean era, and so Kabbalah was out there. <clears throat> so from a firm perspective, it's kind of an, an interesting, challenging world out there. Uh, a lot of ideas. But uh, the most important thing, I would say, that he he uh, he got from them uh, was uh, knowledge of languages. They taught him uh, um, foreign languages. I forget which one taught him Latin and then Greek and then French and English and so forth and so on. Always oh, a very interested in English, by the way. And um, once you get languages and German, obviously, live in Germany, then it's a different ball game. And a major theme in his life, and one of the big controversies later in life, has to do with the idea, is it okay to teach a foreign language to the masses of Jews? Now, you say, I guess, what's the problem with a foreign language? After all, you and I live in America. This podcast is being done in English. Uh, most of you if, in, in yeshivas you go to in the United States, you know, the sheer, so to speak, is in English or or some form of English, whatever. Um, you know, it's not in Yiddish anymore. And, I mean, in most places. And, you know, what's the problem? The language is fairly transparent. Uh, I realize language is never totally transparent, but, you know, pretty much transparent. So what's the problem? And the answer is that the Ashkenazi Jews had gotten nice and, 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 and snug and cuddly in their in, uh, cultural insularity, which was characterized by a non-knowledge of foreign languages. They just felt very comfortable in that, in the same way that a Satmar now in Williamsburg feels comfortable in his non-knowledge of English. Okay? He could learn English, he lives in New York, but if it's up to him, if it's possible, he'll know as little as possible. You need what you need to make a living, but more than that, not. The idea being, I like my cultural insularity. You understand? Ah, you're cut off from a whole world of ideas. Heck with that. I don't need that whole world of ideas. See? I don't need that. In fact, I reject it. Um, ah, you'll say, but some of those ideas are okay. I want to be culturally insular. Get off my back. Now, that was the profile of most Ashkenazi Jews, at least for a thousand years. Even though, as I said before, in real reality, you had to pick up some knowledge of, of the Sprach in order to do business. But believe me, many Jews spoke Yiddish, and they talked funny, and they, you know, the old line, uh, who told me the other day, what did the Satmar Chazan say to the PhD from from, from Columbia? The uh, rent is due at the end of the month, something like that. Now, uh, you know, th that was the old attitude. Um, if someone says, uh, wait a minute, why can't you still be from and just pick up a good German or good English or something like that? In principle, there shouldn't be anything wrong with that. But since it was a breach of the cultural insularity and hadn't been done before, it could be seen, and eventually later in his life was seen, as being something like anti-from. But on the other hand, if you do it on an individual basis, a weirdo here, a guy there, a guy there, so nobody cared, because it wasn't for Hamunam, it was only for the Yechidim. So Moses Mendelssohn, simply by being a... a, uh, a uh, Yeshiva guy was a member of the Jewish intellectual class. Uh, those guys were given a certain amount 
of uh, leeway, believe it or not. Um, it's not a yeshiva of the old sort where you have a mashkiach that's breathing down everybody's nose. That is not what the yeshiva in Berlin was. It was actually called a base medrash, and it was more, so it's not a yeshiva in the way we understand it today, typically, uh, which is a control freak situation. You know, the yeshiva wants to know what you're doing all the time, and I can understand why. And the mashkiach job there is organized a snitch system and all the rest of it, and I can understand why. Uh, but rather, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. You know, you had the base manager in, in, in Berlin. Those boys who came and wanted to learn took advantage of the opportunities over there. And, uh, you know, provided they basically conform. Nobody watch, look over your shoulders what exactly you're doing, for example, Chutzla Seder. Uh, and if somebody becomes interested in, in, in acquiring French or another one pick up German, it's Nishkeferlich, particularly because by the 1700s, the feeling was out there, and there's a book on this called Im Chilufet Kufot by that guy, uh, Azriel Shochet. It's a golden only from 1960. Uh, by the 1700s, uh, there was a big feeling out there that knowledge of, of European language will give you a big boost in being Matzlich in business, which is interesting. Um, so I guess the equivalent today would be, I'm just speculating over here, because I am not in the world of business, but if I had an employee or something like that, and I want to give him advice, I say, learn um, uh, Chinese, uh, Arabic, you know, uh, one of those kind of languages, Spanish perhaps, where, um, you know, th- that will help you in, 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 in your business enterprises, and you'll be able to understand the other, and communicate with the other culture. And, you know, if you're talking about India or China, there's a gigantic markets or Vietnam or whatever it is, and it's a big plus. So the guy who can speak Korean has a leg up, I would imagine, over the guy in America who can't. You know, nothing like that. Nothing wrong with that. So in the 1700s, they say, oh, it's good to learn French, it's good to learn German. Uh, Jewish parents, middle-class parents by that time, talking about the 1700s, had already started to uh, have a fashion where they teach their children, particularly their daughters, but also their sons, uh, you know, foreign languages, French and German and things like that. So... It was in the Avira, okay? Now, I didn't say anything about somebody being not from. I'm talking about, uh, how should I wear, a wearing away of the fabric of the cultural insularity. That was already going on uh, in Mendelssohn's time. And uh, he's just part of that phenomenon. So once he picks up a couple of European languages, he taught himself the others. I believe he did it the old-fashioned way, which is with a dictionary. And he, you know, he just taught himself. And once you do that, you have a whole world out there. And there's something called the library, and there's something called Barnes and Noble, and you know, or the equivalent thereof. And he uh, was interested in the world of European ideas, and uh, he took naturally to several areas of intellectual enterprise. Like I said before, history was not his thing. He liked math. Uh, he eventually went into philosophy, which he was fascinated with. But I want to say the kind of philosophy that he was into in the 1700s. Was what I would what I would say, a very uh, kosher philosophy, uh, from Christian Wolff, uh, who yeah I know you never heard of him was a very famous German philosopher and professor, uh, who was uh, very interested in the 18th century. It was still very religious Europe, so used to the Protestants were very Protestant, the Catholics very Catholics, and particularly in the Protestant world, uh, there was all these machlokes and going on. So I'm not going to bore you with the details. You know, the Orthodox versus the Neolog and this, that, and the other. The the, uh, the the theological enlighteners and the secular enlighteners. 
And so as Hotzich gekocht in uh, Northern Europe, in Germany, in Holland, in, in England, uh, a lot of books are written on theolo- theological questions and the, and the role of reason within them. So I'm only mentioning because this is the environment in which Mendelssohn uh, grows up and becomes 18, 19, 20, 21 years old and so forth. And uh, uh, there's a lot to read. And he finds himself very fascinated, as I say, with the Wolfian philosophy, which I said before was actually uh, a pretty uh, from philosophy. It, it it tries, as I understand it, and I'm not a philosopher, it tries to ground religion in reason. Well, nothing wrong with that, you know. Uh, now, he did it from a Christian point of view and has a certain way of argumentation. This stuff is out of date now, but I'm talking about it at that time. And Mendelssohn, throughout his life, wrote a lot of Wolfian-type stuff just with a Jewish twist, you know. Instead of bringing some proofs from the New Testament, it'd be from Chazal or something like that. Uh, it's interesting. He was very much uh, affected, affected by this. He also turns out to be interested in um, aesthetics, and uh, which is a fascinating kind of a subject. Not that I'm into it, but I would say it expressed itself in the fact that he found that he was very good at writing uh, essays on literary criticism. Now, uh, again, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, for yeshiva guys out, literary criticism means doesn't mean you criticize somebody, but rather you offer, you offer a, a critique. You touch up, you see? You touch up. Uh, you analyze what is the nature of somebody else's work. So there's a Shakespeare, and then there are the critics of Shakespeare. I repeat, not that they're criticizing the guy, but they're trying to touch up. What's the shot in Hamlet? What's the godless in Macbeth? Or not, you know, whatever you hold. And why do you say that? And so you have to be able to articulate uh, uh, intellectual arguments in favor of something being good, bad, harmonious, um, uh, beautiful, uh, proportionate, out of proportion. These are fundamentally Greek ideas which uh, end up in the European culture at that time. And Mendelssohn actually founded a magazine, a Geisha magazine, in which he did a lot of these uh, uh, literary uh, criticism uh, stuff. And uh, therefore, you have a funny guy, a guy in yeshiva on the one hand, who's publishing in the New York Times, uh, you know, a weekend uh, magazine, <laughs> you see, on matters of culture and art, uh, which is to, you know, obviously kind of unusual. Now, um, he's, I don't know exactly what happens, but I have the basic idea. Nobody knows, I'm saying. When he's in his late teens, the following must have happened. <clears throat> 19, 20, 21, uh, the following must have happened. Uh, all the guys in the yeshiva got married, and he didn't get married. Now, he was the opposite of tall, dark, and handsome. He was short, fat, and ugly, or hunchback. He had a beautiful mind, and he had a nice personality. That you can tell from everybody who had to do with him. So he was a balmusser in the sense of, of how he conducted himself, Benoam Lechavero. Um, but he's obviously not the typical yeshiva guy. And he didn't come from any money. He had yichas, but, you know, um, he couldn't match it with the money. And he was a good guy, but he wasn't. He didn't want to be a rabbi, so it's not like he threw himself into the learning to that degree. And his interests are kind of wide. And so there's no future for you. What do you do? I mean, once the yeshivas once upon a time were teenage things. Once you get past teenage, so what do you do? They didn't have kolils like we have nowadays. There's a few cloises here and there, but that was unusual. Uh, 
You learn in yeshiva, then you get married and you go out and do something. Or you stay a little extra and you eventually learn to become a rabbi or a diet. And he wasn't doing either. Uh, I'm sure, like I say, a guy like this had zero luck with girls and must have depressed him. I'm very serious. And uh, we know that when he hit like the 19, 20, 21, something like that, he got a certain depression, which is understandable. And he himself says uh, in a letter he wrote to somebody that he was about to give into the gates of her and just become a, a, a gosh me stick a person and live a life of uh, wine, women, and song or something or, or whatever the equivalent was uh, out there to, you know, to surrender to uh, lust and vice. Uh, but so in other words, the Torah studies per se didn't protect against that as often is the case. But he found in his philosophical studies the Amusser that held him back for it from doing that. And so uh, uh, he and the few friends that he had uh, engaged in a lot of writing and uh, discussions and they introduced him to some, some, some uh, young uh, German Geisha um, intellectuals, you know, writers, poets, uh, booksellers, things like this. These are names from yesteryear nobody knows. Gotthold Lessing and Friedrich Nikolai and all that sort of thing. And uh, and they were makar of him. So this is really unusual that you have a Jew who is a Shomer Shabbos, who does put on tefillin every day, having a social relationship with somebody who's not Jewish. This just wasn't done. First of all, from the Jews, and second of all, from the Christians. It was a big social gap between the two. And uh, you know, with, the, with the Christians looking down on the Jews, and the Jews in their own way, of course, looking down on the Christians, and everybody was happy, you know, despising each other. That's the old-fashioned uh, way of the Jews and Gaulists. And here you find somebody who's finding a way to bridge that because he actually has genuine friendships with these guys because they share in common interests in philosophy, in uh, some aspects of science, the aesthetics particularly, even the metaphysics, believe it or not. And... Um, as I said, some of these people like Lessing went on to become very famous German intellectuals among the greatest of the century. And uh, people said, it's like weird, you're friends with this Jewish guy. So, um, but that itself is not going to give you a road in life. He lucked out because I think primarily of his pleasant personality. Here you are, 20, 21 years old, what are you going to do? He got a job as something which was extremely typical of yeshiva guys, especially older ones, and that is he became a tutor in the house of a well-to-do family, uh, Bernard, they owned a factory, and they needed their kids to teach somebody some Limuda Kodesh, and he had, as I say before, a winning personality, it seems, and he uh, taught there for a year or two, and they, the family liked him enough that they offered him a job in the business, uh, in the factory, starting low. And uh, that's where he reigned for the rest of his life. So he actually had a nine-to-five job. And little by little, he rose to the corporate ladder over the years and eventually made partner. Uh, there's nothing uh, magical or funny about this. He had a career, as we would say today. So here's a guy who lives almost all of his life in Berlin, doesn't go anywhere else. But he's, like I said before, you know, he's a person and he's got a nine-to-five job. And... Uh, He's a taxpayer and all the rest of it. And since he is what we would say today, a middle-class uh, guy, she even gets permission from the king, you know, to live there, even though very reluctantly, because he had that special permission for the king even to live there. Anybody who was poor, yeshiva guy, would never get permission like that. 
And here he's spending his 20s. Uh, you know, in other words, that would be the, the 1760s. He's spending, uh, I'm sorry, the 1740s, I beg your pardon. Uh, spending his 20s. Uh, you know, he, he still hangs around the base minutes, as we say today, but uh, not nine to five. But he had a, a Seder. If I remember correctly, he even had a learning Seder with the uh, grandfather, I believe, of Sam's Ravel Hirsch or something like that. Uh, uncle, great uncle. And uh, I remember he told Yaakov M. later on, I learned your peers on the Mishnahis, Lechem Shemayim, you know. So notice, don't think that he, you know, was unlearned. Uh, he ain't no Vilna Gaon, but he wasn't unlearned. And, um, you know, Shas, Medrash, that sort of thing, he, he knew pretty well, as one can do if you're diligent about it. Uh, but on the other hand, he's also interested in all this Geisha stuff, all the European stuff. And little by little, uh, he publishes stuff, and that's a big rush to get your know, stuff published in it, especially in a Geisha newspaper. And he dabbles with all these little uh, enterprises, like writing a little journal Kohelis Musser to try to uh, teach, persuade other Jews to uh, become more broad-minded, but it didn't make a big fuss because then who who reads those things? You know, it wasn't a mass enterprise. He's writing it in Berlin, and uh, you know, probably a small number of people read the whole thing in the first place, and then didn't pay attention to it. Uh, not not really, you know. Uh, I mean, there were a few, but not really, and. Uh, he got interested, as they say before, in um, commenting and participating in um, European culture. And Mendelssohn will go on to be something unique in a number of respects. And one of the respects is that he actually rose to be a player in Galicia culture, not just a consumer. It's interesting enough that you have somebody with yeshiva background, as they say before, a very pious background, being interested in being a consumer of Geisha culture, read their books, read their newspapers, uh, think their think through their ideas and all the rest of it. That itself is unusual, but to be someone who actually participates in the construction of those ideas, uh, whose, whose ideas are part of the uh, of uh, you know the give and take of the intellectual world that that results in in the formation of culture, um, that's unique. Okay. And uh, hold on for a second. And Mendelssohn, as we shall see, actually became, as I say, a member of what we call the Republic of Letters. If you go Google that, you'll see the Republic of Letters was like in the, especially 1600s and 1700s, it was the intellectual community of Europe, which transcended national borders. So, you know, Shakespeare was English, but not only English people read Shakespeare, they all over the world. And uh, Racine and uh, Voltaire, I mean, you know, they wrote in French, but they're read by everybody. And there are German writers and so forth and so on. And, you know, in the 1600s, they usually wrote in Latin, which was a common sprach for everybody. But in the 1700s, they wrote in their own languages. And if you were an educated European, you just simply had to know a couple languages. Otherwise, you're not a Ottoman Aishav, you know. And um, Mendelssohn, of course, knew all the languages. And so basically, it's French, uh, English, and German, uh, primarily. And there's a lot of intellectual activity going on there people coming up with new ideas, chedushim, inventions, new theories of philosophy, new ways of looking at life, new ways of looking at religion, by the way, it's a very important part. I say again, this is not the place to go through the whole Christian history of the 18th century, but a lot of interesting things were happen, happening over there. And our hero is like part of this, 
and he contributes his ideas, especially, as they say, in the realm of uh, certain philosophical uh, trends, metaphysics, uh, literary criticism, aesthetics, you know, this kind definitely out of the yeshiva environment. It's not just like a, uh, a yeshiva guy who was good in math, <laughs> you know, that you've always had down history. Yeshiva guy who happened to be good in trigonometry, you know, uh, this is a lot more than that. It's getting in the, in the very interstices. I mean, he was really turned on by John Locke, for example. I think that was his first hero, uh, which means he read uh, Locke's uh, essay on, on pure reason and, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. And Wolf, Leibniz, so, you know, na names that people haven't heard of today. You may have heard of John Locke. Uh, and he was really into this kind of stuff. Now, at the same time, he was a Shema Shabbos. Like I say, put on film every day. He was a member of the Jewish community. He felt himself totally a member of the Jewish community. But he's also got another side to him. And I wouldn't even say necessarily that it was like a, a, a cognitive dissonance. Somehow he made it, he, you know, he, he put it together, you know. Now, um, here's a guy in his 20s who um, was concentrating now, as he as he was supposed to, had to well, make a parnoso. And he developed a 9-to-5 job. And he showed up every day. And little by little, he rose up the corporate ladder. And uh, by the time he's 30, he has a little money. Not a lot, but he has a little money. And make a long story short, he got married at the age of 32. So I know people like that. There's nothing wrong. He got married at 32 to a girl in um, in uh, Hamburg from a very mucistic family, I might say. Um, Guggenheim. They're related to the to the famous court Jews, Oppenheimer and so forth. Remember, yeah, uh, men sent his own yichas, and uh, he wasn't your typical low middle class Jew. When I say, I'm talking about in financial terms, he made money like a you see a middle class or a lower middle class guy. I mean, you know, what well, you know what kind of money you make in, in that thing. As he rose up the corporate ladder, he, he did better, but he never was a millionaire or anything like that at all. He was okay, as we say today, okay, but. His reputation was such that he ain't the regular type of guy, but uh, he's got Gaisha friends. He publishes newspa in, in newspapers. He writes uh, a literary reviews. He has Gentiles who uh, who, who uh, appreciate him as a human being. So, you know, that came like an extra edge within the uh, Jewish community because you always need a few like that. Klape uh, chutz, as they say. And anyway, he got married at the age of 32. She was from Hamburg. And, uh, yeah, they wrote each other a lot of letters and that sort of thing. And they had 10 kids. So he actually had a pretty traditional Jewish marriage. Uh, Mendelssohn himself always had a beard, a little one, but he always had a beard. Because what kind of what, what, what kind of a guy are you? You're a total geluach. I mean, he, in the 18th century, a lot of people shaved a lot of their face, but not all of it. Uh, she always... Uh, had her head covered. Uh, in fact, she came from a pretty traditional background, so she didn't even have a shaitel. You know, I don't have to tell you, once upon a time, a shaitel was considered osir, which it still is in some circles today, right? Instead, you have to have a tichel, so, uh, or a stern tichel or something like that. So she was of that sort. And he even said like this, I'm not the handsomest guy, and you're not the most beautiful girl, but we love each other as a heck with it. And they put together a family, say, had 10 kids, which means he was a normal guy, 9 to 5, he had a family and all the rest of it. As happened in the 18th century, about half the kids died young. That's what used to happen, okay? The other half m made it. And uh, shine, you know, shine. Now, here comes 
the beginning of the more interesting parts. Because I'll say again, you had these guys in the Republic of Letters. They're all not Jewish. But now there's a guy who, when he writes stuff, other intellectuals, not Jewish, in other countries even, certainly in Germany, react to it. They uh, uh, like it, they criticize it, they critique it, this and that. But you're a player. You know, your ideas count. So you have a Jewish guy who's a member of the Republic of Letters who's not, like Spinoza, an alienated Jew or something like that. You have a guy who's writing on, on Leibnizian uh, philosophy who, uh, you know, gets up in the morning to say slickers. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm serious. And, um, you know, if you read his letters, he, he wrote a lot, wrote a lot of Gemara Yiddish and things like that in there. And uh, he was just a strange uh, uh, animal. And then he wrote a book called Fado, in which he undertook to uh, deal with what was a hot topic at that time, and uh, which is whether there's life after death, or the immortality of soul. I told you the new science was challenging the old religion. By that time, he had a lot of deism popping up there. Deism can appear in several forms. It can either say, I believe in God in a general form, but not in a specific form. Or you can say, you know... Uh, the whole religion is nothing but Haftarecha Kamocha, and so on and so forth, you know. And, um, uh, or you could say, listen, there is a God, and, you know, but the idea is you should be, as Maimonides would put it, a good a, a good Jew, you know. Or if you're not Jewish, a good Christian, and be uh, good and benam l'chaveru and all that sort of thing, be honest and ethical. Uh, and if you raise it to a higher level of, of, of uh, speculation, you know, why did God create the world? And uh, does it make sense that people, listen to what I'm saying, if you believe in a good God, then why are you just here only for Olam Hazeh? After all, for most people, Olam Hazeh stinks. So, the great majority. So, why would God do that if, he, if God is nice? If you tell me God is a sadist, all right. So, I, most of life, you know, it's like, like Shlomo says, you know, you may on a machovim. I get that. But if you believe in a good God who likes to do things, then you kind of like pushed in the direction that maybe this world is not so great, but the next one is going to be really great. And uh, anyway, these were questions up for discussion. You see, in the 18th century, as I said before, science and philosophy were getting divorced, but they weren't totally divorced yet. So today, a philosopher in secular science won't get into the question of how does God operate. But at that time, you did, at least, and, and, and not all, but you know, many, especially in Germany, and Mendelssohn wrote a book, which he, uh, in very interesting fashion, first of all, it's in German. Second of all, it's nothing specifically Jewish in there at all. And thirdly, he modeled it on the Socrates-Plato uh, thing. When Socrates was dying, as is very famous in uh, all his students of philosophy, that Socrates was the Athenian philosopher who was condemned to drink hemlock and die by that way, by poison, by Athens, because he was corrupting the youth. He was leading him off the derrick in terms of Ashkafa. That's the way the Athenians saw it. And Socrates chose to leave in a very classy way. He he died talking and learning, as we say. You know, he's in conversation, surrounded by people. Little by little, he sips the hemlock and slowly but slowly dies. And one of the questions over there had to do with, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, immortality Soul. Uh, but, it, it, no, is that something Socrates discusses with Phaedo? One of his uh, Greek interlocutors. And so, 
our hero writes a book called Phaedon, you know, the new Phaedo, in which he discusses from a 18th century perspective whether or not, you know, there's optimism or pessimism out there, whether it's all over when you die, whether there's a life after death, whether the soul remains immortal, or do you say ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and bupkis to bupkis. And now, there's a from book. By that I mean he didn't say anything in there that was opposed to Judaism, quite the opposite. He said there is life after death, God is good, the soul is immortal, and so on and so forth. But he didn't use Jewish um, talk in it. So the message is one which conforms to Judaism. Uh, but the message is that, but it's but um, it's not Jewish at all. And again, it's written in German, which means that by this time he was well, you know, good enough to write in German. And it was actually written in a very nice German. Uh, I'm not a bucking in German, I can read, but I'm not a bucking. But Mendelssohn is always writes in a very nicey nice style. I can tell that, you know, in a very 18th century nicey nice style. And so, um, and it was published and it became a bestseller in Europe. That's the point I want to make. I think it was translated in 11 languages. He hit the charts. He was at the top of the, this book obviously touched a nerve with European culture in the 1760s, just emerging from the carnage of the Seven Years' War, if you know what that is. And Stamazai things were, you know, pretty ucky. And here's a guy arguing uh, from a secular point of view, so to speak, in favor of an idea that conforms with religion, uh, which is a good God, and life after death, and, and the beauty of the soul and its immortality. And for some reason, it really, you know, took off among the Goyim. See, the book was not written for Jews. Jews couldn't read German especially a nice German. But people who, are, people who are not Jewish could read it, and they loved it. I know exactly why, but, you know, obviously, when a book takes off, then the historian's job is to say, why did it take off? Uh, if you're a literary critic, which I'm not, then you say, what's good and what's bad about the book? But when you know that a book, even if you consider it junk, I'm not saying it's junk, just give me an example. Let's say I read a book, and I say, this is junk. And then you tell me, it's a bestseller, you know? Like some of these uh, authors you see in the bookstores who write the novels, stupid novels, and they sell, sold millions of copies. So then as a historian, uh, the question is how come in the year 2022 this stupid piece of junk became a bestseller and the guy became a millionaire, you know what I'm saying? That's a separate question. So this is what uh, Mendelssohn pulled off, and this rocketed him to real fame because all of a sudden everybody knew who he was. Now, many thought he's not Jewish, but then he pretty quickly found that he's Jewish. I want you to understand, there were um, Christians, there were Catholic priests in the monastery who wrote him letters, fan letters, it's unbelievable, who said, you know, we had Sveikis and Amuna, and because of your book, you know, you restored our Amuna, and we want to thank you, even though you're Jewish. That's Loyomiki Super. That didn't happen in Europe. You get it? I mean, that kind of thing was not supposed to happen. And there were noblemen and princes and junk like that who said, this book is fantastic. You know, and it really touched a, a spot with us. And, you know, you're a fantastic guy and so on and so on and such and such. And all of a sudden he found himself very famous. He found himself very famous. Now, uh, that made it, as I told you before, that he was an exception, an ice numb. Because here's a guy in a community where, like Berlin, which is extremely um, Philistine. The Jewish community. It was extremely, uh, how should I put it, money-oriented. It had to be. To be anything, you had that money. And you know, when you're in that kind of shoal, and some of you listening are in those kind of shoals, 
If you're having that kind of show, everybody, these guys are touching each other up and everybody else by how much do they make. You get it? So if the guy makes, you know, a million a year and you only make a half a million, you're a loser. Get it? You know? Uh, and if that guy makes a million and a half, oh, he's even bigger. That guy makes 10 million. It's all a matter of the money. Nobody says like this, what's his midos? You know, <laughs> something like that. It's, it's what, what's the dollar sign? You see? Uh, now, by that standard, Mendelssohn was a nobody in the Berlin community. But no, he's got an extra asset. That asset is the guy I'm hold of him. <laughs> you see? Okay. That puts a different spin on it. Then this is a guy we want to cultivate and leave in our community and give him some room because it's very important for us in help trying to ameliorate the ever-present anti-Semitism, which was so toxic in Germany and Prussia particularly, that anything that's good PR for the Jews, you want to cultivate. So, And second of all, the guy's not a bum. He does work nine to five. Yeah? He had what we would call, say today a very solid, respectable, middle-class Parnassa. Nothing big, but, you know, very respectable. And, and, of course, as time went on, he made more because he was rose higher in the company, but never was really loaded, as they said before. But he's known, uh, as they said before, imagine if you're Jewish and you're living in Berlin. As a Jew, there was a Jewish neighborhood or two. There was. And and they had a show. I mean, Berlin had a famous show once upon a time. It's uh, destroyed. It's a different one now, but... Uh, where he dabbled all of his life. He dabbled there every day, every day. Uh, and everybody looks around you and says, damn Jew, or this, that, and the other. You know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. At the time I'm talking about, for example, uh, the Jewish community had to pay a Christian to attend services to make sure you don't spit when you say, uh, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, uh, if you go online, you can see, just Google Frederick the Great's regulations on the Jews. They micromanage everything about the Jewish community. Is a lot of contempt. Contempt. And then you see a fancy coach and wagon pull up. It turns out it's a prince of something or a duke of something. He said, I want to visit Musa Mendelssohn, the Jew. That's a hashivas you don't get anywhere else. You, you get what I'm saying? And then people say, yes, okay. So he's up as something. The guy I'm hold of him. And uh, I would say he kind of reached a certain peak as a result of this uh, book. And they even put him in the, uh, what do you call it, in the uh, travelogues. They say, you go to Berlin, you know, go visit this and go visit this. And then you see the talking monkey. is a Jew who's actually intellectual. <laughs> you understand? He's a talking monkey. Um, and he was riding high. And may I say that as a result of what I just said, and this is very old-fashioned Jewish, the, his fame went to other Jewish communities who then said like this, since the Goyim hold of you, we don't know what you wrote, but obviously you did something that you scored points with the Goyim. Since the Goyim hold of you, will you please be a, a, a lobbyist for us? Meaning, we live in this uh, duchy or principality or this state in Germany. There's always all this anti-Semitic going on. Every 10 minutes, somebody was out to uh, expel the Jews from their town or their community or jack up the taxes to double or, you know, one of these... Gazerists that were very common all throughout the 15th, 16th, 1700s. That's just how it was. All these Gazerists. And what were the Jews supposed to do in reaction to that? They couldn't speak for themselves because all they knew was Yiddish. Notice it was a Bizionist that they couldn't appeal to the Goyim in an intelligent way. There was no Jew who could write an intelligent essay 
um, try to explain the Jewish point of view to the Gentile authorities, even to support the Jewish position. This is probably true in a lot of places today. A lot of smart people out there, I myself know a lot of learned people who are market shears in different situations, they couldn't write an essay to, to, to save their life. Uh, you know what I know. They know the yeshivish sprach and all that sort of thing. They couldn't, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to write the art school. That's not who art school pulls to, to be the writers. Okay? Now, there's plenty of others that are. That's true. But I'm just telling you, that's how it goes. Uh, and since you have this guy named Mendelssohn, and since he's a from guy, and since he dominates every day and all the rest of it, he's a Shomer Tarmitsis, and the guy him like him, so please, will you, Mr. Mendelssohn, do us a favor and draw up a letter in a nice German, in an intelligent way, to appeal to the king or the queen or the duke or the prince or whatever in our community, the archbishop, to be this in this particular Gezerah. So as they tried to leverage, it's a very classic Jewish uh, stance. Why not? Why not? And would you, oh, would you um, use your prestige and your writing ability and your eloquence to uh, make an appeal that will get them not to double our taxes or not to confine our uh, commercial rights or uh, not to uh, compel us, I don't know, you know, to do whatever. Uh, right? It's bad enough to all the restrictions we have now. Don't add new ones. Or maybe once in a blue moon, maybe get one of the restrictions removed. That was very hard once it's already on there. And Mendelssohn was a nice guy, and sure. And he wrote a lot of these kind of petitions and stuff like that to the different governments. And usually it worked because it was the 18th century. And provided you adopt the right tone, get it? Provided you write it in the right way, okay? Uh, you know how to appeal to the German mentality of that particular time and the particular arguments of the Enlightenment and the reason, which were popular in intellectual circles at that time in Germany, so maybe you could get a slocha. Now, there were plenty of anti-Semites there who weren't interested in any kind of Enlightenment rhetoric and this sort of thing. It was a famous guy, Michaelis, who was always writing against Mendelssohn, these other guys. They had plenty of a share of, uh, of uh, anti-Semitin that you had. But you also had a lot, believe it or not, you also had a lot of college-educated people who were interested in Enlightenment. And um, when you call somebody out on a racist business, it's not so easy to defend. And so as a result... He gained a lot of traction among Jews, particularly in Germany and in the West in general, uh, for what I just said. Now, he had no shakas with the Jews to the East. Berlin is not far from Poland, but that was a different world. He knew about them, of course, and once in a while he corresponded with some people there, some Polish Jews would come to Berlin, but, you know, uh, the situation in Poland was of a different nature. So where Rove of the Jews lived, he had no real shaykhs, as far as I know. But in the German states, and in Central Europe, and even in France later on, we'll see, uh, he did use, on many occasions, his uh, skill and ability and prestige uh, to help out the from Jews. You understand? So, no, he wasn't a bad guy or anything like that. And he didn't give him a How come you don't learn anything to hold yourself and do it yourself? Well, he wasn't that type of guy. Um, on the other hand, there was no suggestion on the part of these other communities since Mendelssohn learned German and all the rest of it, we should start now going to college or something like that. That connection didn't occur to people uh, up to the 1760s. Okay? Up to the 1760s. Uh, and then, 
So he was, I would say, in a certain sense, if he would have died right then and there, he'd just be a famous guy. Uh, but then events took a, a unusual turn, uh, which uh, which led to a certain crisis, and then a change in his uh, mahalach, uh, which became much more focused on on introducing changes into Jewish life. Uh, and that has to do with uh, a certain challenge that was sent to him by a, a, a Protestant minister from Switzerland. Uh, but I think I'll save that for next time. So uh, that'll be the second part of the Mendelssohn. So let me close it down over here. I've had to do this in starts and spurts all day long because I have a lot going on in the house. But uh, this will give you a basic idea who Mendelssohn was. So far, nothing particularly controversial. That's my point. First half of his life or more, because uh, at the time I'm talking about, he was uh, you know in his 40s. So the controversial parts of Mendelssohn would start who in his forties, in his in his mid forties, I guess. Until then, you know, not not nothing uh, unusual about that. Uh, anyway, with that, I'll close this down. I want to thank once again Chaim Lazark and his family in Mexico, who, as they say, are on the front lines of the Kira for sponsoring this first part. And we shall return to this in the future, Mir Hashem. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.